Okay, um, well, praise God you're all here. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of, when, maybe if you've heard me talk before, I'm, sometimes I'm pretty animated, uh, jump around screaming, that kind of stuff. Tonight's going to be a little bit more somber, I think, unless I get on a tangent. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, when we, the last time I, I spoke to you, we talked about the discernment of spirits, and we, we began with the whole... Uh, you know, RIM and the ARRR and, and those kinds of things about how to, how to begin to understand, first of all, your identity in Christ, but then also how to receive from the Holy Spirit. Ignatius then talks about, I mean, he, his rules of discernment, it's very important to know they are not like specific to the Jesuit order, right? The way Ignatius set up his rules of discernment, they're practical norms for life. They're not just for Jesuits who are trying to discern, like, you know, what they should do within the order and if they should be priests. And this is for human beings. He came to this understanding while he was, before he was a priest, and he's, he's trying to get across to us that there are specific guidelines, 15 in all, about how if we pay attention to these, we're aware of these, that we will more clearly and distinctly hear the Holy Spirit working in our lives, and we will also hear the enemy working in our lives. So it's important to know who is speaking. I want you all to know that in discernment, you know, people can get caught in what I call perpetual discernment, which means they're just afraid to make a choice. Perpetual discernment is, you know, I just, I, the priesthood or religious life or married life or I, I just, I don't know, I got to keep praying, I got to keep praying, I got to keep praying. When God very clearly is pushing the person gently, I like to say the word wooing, but that doesn't sound very masculine. He is wooing the soul into communion with him, and he is telling them what he desires. But the person in fear, because he's listening to the wrong spirit, is not answering. I think, you know, I've told some of this maybe in homilies or some of the, my, in my class. When I, was, when I was discerning, I was in perpetual discernment because I was scared about being a priest. I didn't know what it was like. I didn't have anything... And then the other side, we romanticize the heck out of marriage, right? Like I said that last time, I was, I was talking to this young man. I'm like, you know, what do you think about the priesthood? And he's like, oh, you know, there's you know, celibacy and loneliness. And, and, you know, like, what if people hate my homilies? And what if I can't preach? And what if I don't know how to give talks? And what if I can't balance a budget? And what if I can't blah, 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 And I'm like, wow. Well, what about marriage? Oh, marriage is going to be awesome. <laughs> you know, I'm like. I'm like, time out, something's wrong here, right? So what's he doing? He's listening to the wrong spirit. He's not even really considering how irrational his thought is in regards to this. It is so important to remember, you guys, that the thoughts in your head, not all of them are your thoughts. Some of those thoughts, some of those feelings, some of those desires are coming from the demonic. Some are coming from the angelic. And it is our job to discern who is speaking. Remember, in discernment, we are never trying to figure out a what. I think this is where we're all screwed up in modern discernment. We are not trying to figure out a what. People come to me and they say, Father, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. I'm discerning. Well, I'm not going to tell you what you're supposed to do. And even if I did, nobody would listen to me. You know, somebody says, should I be a priest or should I be married? Just tell me what to do, Father. Be a priest. No way, I can't do that. <laughs> Well, then why'd you ask me? I am not going to be able to tell you. The only one that's going to be able to tell you who is convincing enough is God himself. 
And you have to learn to listen to him. And here's the thing. People are like, I never, I can't hear God. I can't hear God. You're just not listening right. He's talking all the time. He is conveying his thoughts, his feelings, his, his desires to us all the time. We are just constantly caught up in distraction. And people would say, does it really matter, you know, like, like which voice I follow, or if I discern the who? What if I just want to discern the what? God asks the question, does it matter if a doctor knows the difference between malaria and the common cold? Yes, it does. Because you're going to treat it differently. You're going to realize that maybe if somebody has malaria, they're in a bit more of a predicament than a person that has a common cold. They need more work. So we have to listen to the who. We have to discern the who. That is so important in modern day. Not in modern day. I don't want to get get the hell away from that stuff. It's not modern. It's important for discernment. It's not a what. It's a who. Always remember that. There are three movements of the rules. Okay? Aware. Understand. And then receive or reject. We have to be aware of who's speaking. We have to understand who the source... Actually, we have to be aware that someone is speaking. (laughs) That's the first thing. Then we have to understand who is speaking, and then we either reject it or we receive it. There's examples I have here uh, just from my own, you know, and maybe maybe I'm alone here. I don't know. Sometimes I'm sitting in my holy hour, and, and I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden I start thinking about all the things I could do. And about all the other, you know, the people that I dislike. And all the stuff that I haven't done. And all the stuff that I need to do. And all of a sudden I'm like, man, I really need to correct those papers. I haven't done them for like four weeks. <laughs> and I'm like, I better go correct those papers right now. All of a sudden I'm like, ah! I'm aware. What are you doing? What is going on? I'm aware I am not focused on Jesus. Understand, what is going on? I am being distracted from my prayer. Who is talking to me? The enemy. Now we're going to get into what the enemy is. Because when you say the enemy, everybody's like, the devil. <laughs> right? And certainly the devil is the enemy. But there's more than the devil that's the enemy. Ignatius has a whole kind of definition of what the enemy is. Another one. I'm driving around in a new car, and the whole time I'm driving, I'm just desiring other cars. What's up with that? It's like we're never satisfied. But are we aware of that simple movement of the Spirit? The other one I have is sitting in front of the tabernacle. I'm all mad and then realizing that the reason I'm mad is not because I'm mad at Jesus. I'm mad because I got in a fight with my friend earlier that day. I'm aware of it. I understand that it's not coming from the heart of the Lord, so I reject it. You know, I I have a little little side note here. I said men are especially bad about being aware. Men. And then uh, I always have the, there was this acronym I heard once I thought it was hilarious. When he asked the man how he's doing, he says, fine. That's freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. <laughs> I'm fine. So what's the, what, what's the poison that gets in the way of these three things? It's diversion. It's distraction. And our world is full of it. If, anybody, if, you, if any of you have read the uh, screw tape letters, there's a point in there when uh, Wormwood, you know, you all know the screw tape letters? Yeah. Well, anyway, if you do, oh, look, you have it. Good. <laughs> She's learning about the devil. <laughs> it's important, in that book, he says, so Wormwood is, is, is the, the younger demon, the apprentice demon, right? And his, and his uncle, Screwtape, is teaching him how to tempt. 
And basically what Lewis is doing is it's a very clever way for him to teach how the demonic works in our lives. And there's one point that where Wormwood's all excited, and he's like, oh, yeah, I got him all alone. He's all in isolation, right? He's all by himself, and he's always in silence. And Screwtape is like, you idiot. <laughs> That's so stupid. You never want him in silence. Silence is the ground of God, or the enemy, he calls him. He said, what we want is noise. Noise. We want kind of just a, 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 a cacophony of noise. And he starts screaming it. You know, but that, they get bolder, and there's exclamation points. So you assume he's screaming it. And it's like, noise, noise, noise. Because what he wants is he doesn't want us to sit back and be aware of stuff so we can understand it, so we can receive or reject. So diversion. Blaise Pascal, the, the French philosopher, he was a gambler. He loved to gamble. And he was always amazed at how he could spend so much time gambling. Do you ever get this? I don't know, maybe whatever your thing is, where you're doing it, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa. And you look over and like five hours are gone. Does that ever happen to any of you? That, that happened to me. Uh, this was uh, last, last year. I remember, as I told you, every, once a year, uh, I play video games. I play Call of Duty. It's like my favorite game, even though it's probably not healthy for my soul. <laughs> but uh, when I play that over Christmas break. It's our vacation. We always like, the, my brother and I and some other, some other ones, we like to fight each other. And, and it takes out some aggression from the year. But <laughs> I remember one morning I got up and I'm like, hey, it's vacation. You know, those guys are asleep. I'm just going to pop in this game because I've only played multiplayer. I've never actually played the game. You know, and I started playing. I was playing, drinking my coffee, you know, and, and I'm playing, I'm playing. And all of a sudden, like, you know, people are coming downstairs and I'm playing and playing. You know, I like, all of a sudden it's like 11 o'clock. You know, I started at 8. You know, and my eyes hurt and I kind of have a headache. <laughs> And I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> Where did three, three hours of my, my life are gone? They're completely gone. That's when I got freaked out, you know, and I just said, no more get video games ever. Because <laughs> it, it, it sucks you in. But that's what diversions do. Diversions suck you in. They pull you away from the spiritual life. Now, they can assist. They can assist, but they can also really hinder. You know, but I, I think in my own life, you know, it's, it's, we just have to be able to be aware of God in the midst of diversion. So there's a lot of different things you can do, right? I'll give you a couple of examples from my own life. But just being aware of God in the midst of diversion. So like when I'm fishing, okay? Fishing is a diversion. It is. I mean, it's fun, but it's a diversion. You can get away. You talk about people, you know, they're always like, I'll go fishing. I don't go to Sunday Mass. That's a total diversion. But in the midst of fishing, can you be aware of God? Sure. Like when I'm fishing... I take the worm and the, and the hook, and I'm just amazed at worms. Because worms are really neat little things, you know? I mean, if you ever sit and just contemplate a worm. And you don't get a lot of vision done if you do that too long. But to look at the worm and to wonder what the worm's all about. You know, the worm, it, it, it digs through dirt. And that's what it does. And then it's really good bait. You know, like, like why was that created? And I'm talking to God about the worm. And then, you know, letting the, let it go down to the water. And then I'm contemplating water. You know, God's gift to us, without water, nothing lives. And you just look, you're like, I'm floating on water. How is that possible? And then I think about the laws of physics. <laughs> and I think, you know, like, if I put enough weight, you know, my, my, my thing will go down. But, but if I put a bottle around it, then it floats. And it's all in water. And then in the water, there's fish. 
And fish are amazing. Because fish live in water. And so when you catch a fish, you got this thing in front of you, and you're like, this is God's creation. So the point being is like, in the midst of all these things, I'm aware of the divine. In the midst of my diversion, I am aware of the divine. Another one, uh, my brother, he's a, he, he has a real contemplative uh, kind of spirituality. And it's, a, it's really, a, it's kind of comes out in weird ways. One day we were sitting around a bond, one night, so we out, my mom, and my brother and I, we go on this vacation up to my great uncle Lake Cabin. We always sit out, and we sit around the bonfire, and, and just sit. It's awesome. And, you know, like, you know, everybody loves sitting around a bonfire. You don't have to talk. You just sit. It's great. And as we're sitting there, and you look it up at the stars, and everything's beautiful, and you're the little, like, you know, wait. My brother was like, this is it. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, this is heaven. I'm like, really? <laughs> he's like, yeah, this is heaven. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, the bonfire. He's like, check it out. We're all looking at the bonfire, but we're all aware of each other, and we're all communicating to each other. So it's as if our communication is going through the fire. And the fire is light. It enlightens us, and it is heat. It keeps us warm. And away from the fire is darkness. So we got to stay close to the fire and communicate around the fire and through the fire. That's heaven. And I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> that was awesome. You know, like, I, but, but that's just, that's in the midst of, of a diversion or something that you're, you're constantly contemplating. You know, my, my spiritual director, she's a piece of work, Trudy McCaffrey. You know, she always says to me, like, whenever I'm doing something, you know, I'm like, I'm like, hey, I'm going snowboarding. She's like, go snowboarding with Jesus. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, Trudy, you know? And she, but she's always like, that's her answer for everything. You know, and I'm like, I'm really mad. Did you take it to Jesus yet? You know, and I'm like, is this spiritual direction? <laughs> I feel like anybody could do this. <laughs> but she's always right. Like, it's always an unrelated thing. But her, I mean, the way she lives her life, it is so in touch with the spiritual realm. That's why she can, like, dang near read souls. It's because she is constantly in communion with the living God. She is constantly discerning everything. And it be, it's become so habitual to her that she just, like, floats around. She doesn't, there's not a care in the world that happens to this woman, you know? Like she was going through, she had this whole book that she, she directs the 30 day, the Ignatius 30 day spiritual exercise. She had this whole book of like her entire, her entire like life work into the exercises, everything she's learned and how she directs and she lost it in Italy, which is like the worst place ever to lose anything. <laughs> And, and she was like, oh, shoot. She's like, I don't have my book anymore. And I'm like, oh, crap. Like, that's gone. Like, that's everything. She's like, I'll just ask Mary to bring it to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what? <laughs> me as a priest. What? You think like, Mary can really do miracles? <laughs> so I'm like, and then, I, then I'm like, you idiot. <laughs> and so she just kind of like... <laughs> I'm not kidding you. You know, it's like five minutes, and I'm just like, you know, I suppose I better pray too, you know. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like, she's, and then she's like, okay. <laughs> and just walks. And she goes up to the, where the lost luggage place is at the airport, 
And she's like, I'm looking for a, a, a book. And they're like, oh, yeah, this one? And I'm like... <laughs> you know, and she's like, yep, that's it. You know, and... Yeah, like, there's... You know, like, in our own lives, when, when miracles happen, we're like, holy crap! In her life, it's just like, well, yeah, he's God. <laughs> What's the big deal? You know, so it's just... This, a beautiful, this beautiful way, that, that is what we're shooting for. Like where she is at, that's what we're shooting for. You know where Therese says, I, at, at the end of her life, she's like, nothing, nothing affects me anymore. Because she was so in communion with the living God, and anything that was not from him, she just rejected immediately. It was, it was easy for her. Right now you can sit back and say, it's hard. I know it's hard. But it gets easier. You can trust me on that, Okay. So we need this reflective activity throughout our life so we can be aware of the who who is speaking, okay? Um, number one, I want to go in, I'm just going to cover four rules tonight. You know, you could literally spend like a, uh, an entire semester on each rule, okay? But rule number one, hopefully doesn't, uh, uh, it doesn't, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Offend? Offend? Not offend. Apply. <laughs> Maybe it's apply to all of you in here, okay? Because he says the first one is mortal sin to mortal sin. So the first, the first rule is for those who are moving from mortal sin to mortal sin to mortal sin to mortal sin, like a college student. <laughs> okay? From mortal sin to mortal sin. He said, if, if this is the case, if you are in rule number one, none of the other rules apply. Very important to know that. So if somebody comes to me and they want like spiritual direction or counseling or something like that, and I'm like, tell me about your life, and they're mortal sin to mortal sin, I'm like, there's nothing I can really do for you until you stop this. And you, uh, the, the, only, the only advice I can give you is pray to God that you will stop this. It's important to know here too, because you can be like, well, every once in a while I fall into mortal sin. Does that put me in category one? Am I a sinner and never going to discern anything? That is not what Ignatius is talking about. Ignatius is talking about rule number one is for those who are in mortal sin and desire it. They want to keep sinning. When you are in this, he says the good spirit acts in a certain way and the bad spirit, or the enemy, acts in a certain way. Okay? It should be pretty common sense. How do you think the bad spirit acts? Huh? Good. Well, what do you mean by that? Good, yeah. So he, when that's what you mean by good, right? He encourages this. He gets the mind to continue to think about it and stirs up desires for it. So he's saying, you're a sinner. You need to be a better sinner. You, you're, you're really kicking butt at sinning, but we can go even further. Come with me. Right? And so he wants to encourage the sin to continue. And he will also entice pleasure, more pleasure into the sin. This is why people, now you've got to remember too, the whole concept of the, the discernment of spirits is freedom versus enslavement. The person who is in mortal sin to mortal sin, the bad spirit is this big encouraging voice. But what is he encouraging for? Slavery. He wants you to be a slave. 
In the good spirit, how do you think the good spirit acts when he, in, in these poor souls' lives? Yeah. He's saddened. He's sad. Well, you mean the soul? Yeah. Yeah. He's pushing the soul to sadness. Good. What else? Bites at the conscience. Huh? Bites at the conscience. Good. Bite. I like that word. Bites at the conscience. <laughs> Going after the conscience. He's stinging. He's biting. He's pushing against. That's why these people, do you, again, you've got to remember. And you might say, well, I mean, how many people are really in rule number one? A lot. A lot of people are in rule number one. In fact, I would say secular society bases its whole philosophy off of rule number one. That's why they are encouraging sin. And when everybody, whenever there's a voice that tries to discourage it, to bite at it, that one gets shut down. <clears throat> this is the philosophy of the world, rule number one. So it's important to know that people that are stuck in this, when they hate you and me, because we're trying to help them, they're not really hating us. They hate themselves. They hate their behavior. And it's easier to mock the person who's trying to help than it is to change their own life. It's very important to, to remember this because you're going to encounter, you probably even know people like this. And the good spirit will continue to bite and to sting and to push against. I remember I was working with this, this young man, and he was telling me, he's like, and he was going sin to sin to sin to sin. And he's like, you know, I, he came to me, he's like, I can't sleep. And I'm like, why? He's like, I don't know. He's like, I just keep feeling like, like there's something wrong in my life. I'm like, really? Tell me more. He's like, I just, I, I, I constantly have this nagging sort of sense that something's wrong. This anxiety, this fear. This is, the, this is the good spirit pushing against somebody, trying to get their heart to break. Maybe some of you have been here. You know, in my own life, I remember in college when I woke up one morning, I was just like, gosh, there's got to be more. There was this stinging inside of me of like, is this the end? Is this it? Have I reached the pinnacle? Is this the top of the mountain? Or is there more? That's the good spirit. And it can sadden the soul because the soul knows it's not doing what it's supposed to do. In this, you know, really quick, you know the story of Ahab? <clears throat> Ahab and Jezebel? Be confident. Do you know it or not? No. You do. What's the story? That's not fair. You're in my class. You just covered that. Like the field? Yeah. Where he's crying because, oh gosh, what's the other guy's name? I can't think Nabal. What? Nabal. Nabal's field. So he really wants this field. He's like, give me your field. And Nabal's like, I'm not going to give you this field of my ancestry. And so he goes home and he literally throws a tip. He's crying and he won't eat. And Jezebel's like, <laughs> That's exactly how she works. <laughs> and so she's like, stop it. I'm going to fix this right now. So she plots this. She writes, it was very malicious. She has all these letters sent out. And she's like, declare a fast. Put Nahab or Nab whatever his name is. <laughs> Nabon at the head of the fast. And then, like, say he's guilty. Like, it's a couple of criminals. Say he's guilty. And then stone his death. And they do it. And it's like, there's your vegetable garden. Good. 
clap for her. That's, that was very well acted out, too. Okay. That is exactly what happened. Back to the D. But you notice Ahab is going from sin to sin, right? First he goes out and says, give me the vase, won't. So then he tells Jezebel. Actually, Jezebel is going from sin to sin. And she's the one that's, you know, first she, she lies. Then she, she has deceit. Then she has him killed. Then she steals the, you know, so it's moving from not just the mockery of a subject or the, 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 the hurting of a subject to the actual killing. And so it's sin to sin to sin. It's this movement. It's a fundamental direction. And what we are talking about within the rules, very important, is relationship. This is the most fundamental point that Ignatius makes. Everything in the spiritual life is about relationship. Who are you in relationship with? I want to bring something up tonight. This might be a little weird, but uh, I had a couple, couple encounters with it lately. And it's very important. I think you need to know it. If there is any any type of playing around, messing around with the occult in your life, anything. I know this might sound a little weird in a little out of place, but I've dealt with this numerous times in the past couple weeks. If there is anything like that, Ouija boards, uh, seances, uh, calling on demonic spirits, I don't know, anything like that, that is a huge, huge block. To grace. You, even if you have a big conversion, you have fundamentally and formally forged a relationship with the demonic, and that needs to be broken. Good news is Christ can break that, but so many times you'll be working with somebody and they just can't move on. They can't get past where they're, they're, they're doing well, but they're just stuck. And you say to them, you say, have you ever, have you ever is there anything in the occult well, yeah, you know, back when I was 14, I'm like, why didn't you tell me? That's a huge thing. If we believe in the spiritual life and we believe in relationship, some of you maybe are doing the consecration to St. Louis de Montfort right now. That is a fundamental forged relationship with the divine. If we can do that with God, why can't we do that with the divine? <clears throat> And if you have done anything like that, number one, take it to confession. And number two, have a priest pray a prayer of deliverance over you. It will do, it will do amazing things for your spiritual life. The other thing, I just want to have a little disclaimer. It does not mean you're possessed, okay? <laughs> I'm serious. Like, you know, like, you're like, oh, crap, like I played with the Ouija board when I was 12 years old. It's okay. We can take care of it. <clears throat> But just remember that that is a huge thing. And a lot of people hide that in their past. They don't want to talk about that. It's really important that you get that taken care of as soon as you can, okay? I just wanted, that was a little side thing. When Ignatius says the enemy, this is important to know. He means a couple things. He means Satan himself, okay? That's obvious. He also means the demonic. He also means, this is, and I think that, you know, everybody would be like, oh yeah, I got those two. That makes sense to me. But he also means concupiscence. That's a hard word to spell. <laughs> Not even sure I spelled it right. He also means your history, 
of sinfulness. And he also means social sin. So there's, there's a lot of, when we say the enemy, we're like, oh, the enemy is always speaking to me. He doesn't just mean the devil himself and the demonic. He means your own disordered desires, your own attraction to vice. He also means the history of your sinfulness. So let's say you have a long line of porno, pornographic, you know, addiction, and you break free from that. Is that enemy still going to affect you? Yes. Is it still going to speak to you? Yes. Social sin. That's when you know you're getting a big group of people, and right now you're in a big group of people where we, we're not part of social sin. We're part of Christianity. We're part of the church. But when you guys get into your own individual professions, you're going to get into groups of people where you will definitely be the minority. You might be on your own. You might be standing as a lone soldier in the midst of a social construct of sin. So everybody around you is saying, abortion! And you're like, no! No! You know? <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> but in the midst of that social sin, all of a sudden, you hear it so much, you're bombarded by it so much, that you slowly begin to say, huh, maybe I'm wrong. You know? And you can sit back right now and you're like, I'd never do that. You know what? Somebody else said, I'll never deny you, Lord. I would die for you. He's one of the greatest saints in the church. He did deny. When the constructs of social sin began to surround him, guess what? He buckled. So society in itself can be the enemy if, it is not crystal, if it's not a crystal-centric society, which, newsflash, we don't live in a Christocentric society. Okay? <laughs> Christendom is dead. Christianity is not. The church is not. But Christendom is. That is when the church actually had a major say in what happened in society, the forming of the laws, all that stuff. So all of these things can be speaking to you. So you can sit back and be like, you know, there's something going through your head and you're like, it's, it's bringing you unrest, it's bringing you disorder, and you're just like, oh, but that doesn't seem like it, though. That just seems like my own thought. Yeah. Sometimes your own thoughts can be your enemies. And you got to reject them. you got to get rid of them. And you got to relate them to Jesus. This is why it's so important to understand what he means by the enemy. Okay? All right. The, by the way, the, the, the example I have from Scripture for rule number one is St. Paul. Actually, Saul. Not St. Paul. So what happened to Saul. You don't get to do it again. <clears throat> Paul was, right? We don't know what he was riding on. It doesn't say, we assume it's a horse, but he was knocked off or something, right? And what was he doing before that? Mortal sin to mortal sin to mortal sin. Okay? Now, not maybe in the eyes of his, in his own faith life, because he was a staunch, zealous Jew, but in the eyes of the living God, it was wrong. And he was getting pleasure out of it, and he was getting pushed forward in it. And then all of a sudden, God, now this is a real extreme example, but instead of God biting and stinging, he just took a two-by-four and knocked him out. <laughs> and Paul is laying on the ground, and all of a sudden, his whole world flipped upside down. Just, you guys, just, for, just take a moment to imagine what that would have been like. Now, this is a guy, he's, he's, not, he's not against God as such. He really thinks what he's doing is a good thing. And all of a sudden, his whole world is, is not just like tweaked. It's flipped upside down. 
And he realizes that the very person he was trying to serve, he was hurting. He was offending. And then what happens? He's blind. I mean, imagine what that would be like. You don't know if you're going to get your sight back. You were off to do God's work, and all of a sudden God has you blind and being led around by the hand. You were the big tough guy in Israel. The number one Pharisee. Now you're sitting, you can't see, you don't know what's going on. All you know is that you've really screwed up. That's the way these, the, the good spirit can hurt sometimes. We always think it's the, the demonic that hurts, but sometimes it's the good spirit that hurts, depending on our state of affairs, okay? Rule number two, which is more important for you guys, I hope. Okay? So number two is not mortal sin to mortal sin. Moral, it is moving toward God. Now this is important, because this is where I think a lot of people are. Rule number two is those who are trying to move towards God, they still sin, they may even occasionally mortally sin. But the fundamental distinction here is, I want God. I want to be with Him. I want, even though I'm a sinner, and I would like to think that the vast majority, I think there's only, you could either be in this one or this one. <laughs> I really do think, I think you're either in one of the two. And if you're in number two, then the rest of the rules apply to you. But if you're in rule number one, none of the rules apply to you. Okay? So, rule number two. Moving toward God. The example I like to use is King David. It's a very clear example from the scriptures of what this looks like. King David, right? He's, he's this great king. He's doing amazing things. He conquers everybody. And then one day he's up on his patio and he's strolling around. And he's just so happy. I love how it says he, he happened to notice. <laughs> hey, a naked woman. <laughs> you know, he happened to notice this woman who's bathing. And, uh, and he decides to take interest in her. He has relations with her and then sends her home. Lo and behold, she gets, she's pregnant, right? All of a sudden, you know, Nathan, I love this, uh, the line when Nathan comes in, he says, I'm going to tell you a story, David, I'm going to tell you the story about this great king and then this little peasant guy. And this great king had flocks and herds and all this stuff, and the little peasant, he only had one ewe lamb. And the king threw a great banquet, instead of taking from his own herds, he took that ewe lamb and slaughtered it. What should happen to that man? And David's like, that man should die! And then Nathan looks at him and he says, You're the man! Oh, that <laughs> Even just saying it, like, imagine the chilling factor of that encounter would have just... And, and, and notice, though, just notice the difference between Ahab and David. When, David, when Ahab finds out Nabal is dead, what does he do? He rejoices and goes and takes his vineyard. When David finds out that God knows what he did, that he is guilty of sin, what does he do? He repents. He casts himself on the floor, covers himself in sackcloth and begins to fast and beg God for mercy. That's where we get the beautiful Psalm 51. Probably the most, it's probably my favorite psalm of all the psalms. You ever struggling with uh, mercy? You just go ahead and read Psalm 51 because it was written right out of the heart of a man who was in the throes of sin, begging for God's mercy. That's the difference in movements, Ahab and David. One is moving away from God, one is moving towards God, okay? This, by the way, the, the love of God 
for humanity is offensive to the enemy, right? It is offensive to the enemy. It's illogical. Why is it illogical? Because the devil is an angel. He can't understand why God would be so caught up in these pathetic little bipeds. These, these things that are kind of embodied spirits that sweat, that stink, that poop. Why does he care about them? They're pathetic. And in fact, not only does he care about them, but he makes them higher than the angels. Through Christ becoming man, through the incarnation, humanity is raised above the angels. And the devil hates the fact that God has done that. And so he attacks all those who are moving towards God. This is really, really important, you guys. I think this is fundamentally important in rule number two. Because how do you think the good spirit acts in rule number two? Peaceful. Peaceful, right? Forgiving. There's peace in there. Forgiving. Forgiving. Encouraging. Good word. Always a winner. Whenever you talk about God, just mention love. And it's going to be right. So he's peace, forgiving, encouraging, loving. How's the bad spirit working? Spiteful. Right. I would even say we can just switch him around. He's biting. What else? Distracting. Distraction. Deceitful. Deceit. Temptation. Temptation. Why is it so much easier for you guys with the bad spirit? You're rocking and rolling with the enemy. I guess we know who you hear more of. Right? And I think, and you know, as, as we said here with encouragement, here is discouragement. This is really... <laughs> this is really important because... Ignatius says, when you, are in this state, when you are in this state, when you are in rule number two, you can expect a pattern from the enemy. The evil spirit will sadden with false reasons. He will discourage the soul so that it may not go forward. He wants to frustrate you. He wants you to give up. Every time you're moving towards God, he wants to sever that connection. The devil hates the relationship that we have with God because it's the one thing he doesn't have in it. He can never get back. So the only way, you always say, you know, misery loves company. Like attracts like. Right? The devil, what does he want? He wants to sever. Right? Even hold diabolos in Greek, the thing, my Greek's not that good, but it means to scatter, to divide. That's what he does. He discourages, he frustrates, and you know, you can sit back and you, you'd be like, well, you know, I don't know how much I experience this. You experience this all the time. I mean, who isn't frustrated in a given day? Who doesn't sit back and say, this is happening, God, why is this happening to me? Maybe you don't say it out loud, but we willing to bet internally, you're like, God, why? You know when you come up against somebody who's dying, God, why? Do you even exist? The sin I've been, I've been working on and working on and working on, it just never goes away. Where are you? Where are you in the midst of that? Do you even exist? So the frustration and the discouragement and the false premise that the devil will give to you, and he will always, not only go after your relationship, but the reason, if you remember, 
Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> the reason he's going after the relationship is because of why? You lose your identity. If he can sever the relationship, if he can say, if you can get the soul to say, God, screw you, you don't exist, guess what? You are no longer beloved son, you are no longer adopted son of Jesus Christ, and you are no longer heir to the kingdom. That's your identity. He wants to kill the relationship so he can kill the identity, and if he kills the identity, he kills the mission. Do you understand why he goes after the relationship? Everything, everything depends on it. It's the same reason if you look in the scripture, why? Every time they came to Jesus and they wanted to make him king, or they wanted to like build him up, or he had a huge miracle, what does he always tell the person? Especially with the miracles. Don't tell anybody. And what do they do? They go tell everybody. Why? Jesus is trying to guard his identity and his relationship so he can carry out his mission. His relationship... His identity is beloved son. It's based on the relationship of the father. That's our identity. Our relationship is based, our, our identity comes from our relationship to the father. What do the people want to do? They want to redefine him. They want to give him a new identity and a new mission. You are not son of God. You are king of Israel. Be our king. And every time they try to make you king, what does it say Jesus does? He goes away and prays to the Father. He leans back in to the relationship every time. Every time there's a temptation. And he realizes that I am the beloved son. And again, remember, we talked about this last time I talked, but I don't expect you to remember it. His identity, where does he receive his identity? In the scripture specifically, where does he receive his identity? Baptism. The baptism. This is my beloved son. As soon as he receives his identity, what happens next? Four years in the desert, tempted by the devil. What's the devil attacking? His identity. And all Jesus does is rely on his relationship to the Father. This is not rocket science. When people are coming to me and they're saying, how do you pray? I don't know how to pray. Every time I pray, nothing happens. I never hear God's voice. It's constantly dark. It's constantly dismal. You know? I mean, like, well, friend. If that's your prayer, who wants to pray? You know? Like, my prayer is, I'm not saying my prayer is like, all oh, you know, fireworks and pinwheels. <laughs> but when I sit, and I'm with the Lord, I make acts of faith. And I believe my identity. And I base my identity off of my relationship. And the devil will always attack it. If you're the beloved son, right? Think about the temptations. When he says, if you're the... You know, he says, if, you're, if you are the Son of God, take these stones and make them into bread. What's he saying? First of all, he's saying, if, so he's trying to get him to doubt his identity, but then he's also saying, basically, this is what the temptation is. If you're the Son of God, you should never go without pleasure. If God loves you, you should always have pleasure in your life, shouldn't you? It should always be great. It should always be happy. And that's why Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. This is the second one, right? What's the second temptation? Top of the temple. temple. Takes him up to the parapet of the temple, and he says, throw yourself down, and right before you hit the ground, stop, (laughs) and show everybody how amazing you are. 
Because it says in the scriptures that God did not let his faithful one even dash his foot against the stone. And Jesus said, what that temptation is, what's he saying? If, you're the, if, you're, if God loves you so much, if God, if God is your father, you should never suffer. You should never have pain in your life. What's the third temptation? Top of the mountain to look at the kingdoms of the earth. Bow down and worship me and all this is yours. What's the, what's the third temptation? If God loves you, you should get whatever you want. Do these sound like things from your own life? If God loves me, I should get whatever I want. If God loves me, I should always be pleasure. I should always have pleasure in my life. If God loves me, I should never go without. I should never have to suffer. And when those things happen, when we do suffer, when we don't have pleasure, when we are hurt, when we're not honored, what's the temptation to do? It's to say, God is not loving me. Well, Jesus Christ showed us himself, rule number two. He showed us that God's love spans far beyond the material goods of this world. And that if you claim your identity in Christ, if you believe it, and if you lean into that relationship, that you will in fact have your mission. And you will know who is speaking to you. And it will be clear. Very clear. The, again, the scriptural uh, analogy I use is uh, Moses. Moses and the Israelites, you know, from where you have a, a group of people moving towards God. You know, what always happens with the Israelites? I mean, they always screw it up. <laughs> they screw it up over and over and over again. And if I was Moses, I'd have just been like, you know what, God? Do whatever you want. Right? But you have this saint, you have this man, this man who knows his identity, this man who knows his mission, and he relies on it through his relationship with God the Father. In that, he is able to speak for the people and to save the people. And that's what we need in our, our, our life right now. That's what we need in our world right now. People are grounded in their identity. That they know who they are. So they can know their mission. The Israelites are moving back and forward. You know, 40 years in the desert. That's all of us. 40 years it takes on average before we get anything right. I want to give you an example too um, of this whole discouragement thing. <clears throat> Two, and between the two uh, spirits. I'll give it to you from, it can be from both, but I, I, I obviously work with seminaries. So uh, when a guy signs up for the seminary, it's amazing. You know, he's been working on his relationship. God has given him like, his identity, his beloved son. He says, I'm calling you to be a priest. Man's like, you. Yeah. You should see how jacked up some of these guys are when they come. You think they could conquer the world. And they get the application and they're filling it out. And, Here, look at this. I got that done and this done. And everything's just flying in. And they're all on top of stuff. And they have everything covered. And it's just great. And then you receive them with the bishop. You have a mass. And then you, you, know, you, you tell them where they're going to be assigned to seminary. And all of a sudden, <laughs> they're like, I don't think I'm supposed to go to seminary. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, you know, I've been, I've been praying a lot, Father. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I just don't think this is right. 
This is the enemy. He's distracting them, he's lying to them, he's tempting them, and he's discouraging them. And they are listening to that voice. So I always tell them now that they have his acceptance, they say, I want you to be very clear about something. God is a good father. And he doesn't lie. He would never bring you to this point only to tell you to turn around. Monsignor Shea has a great line that says, trust the providence that has gotten you here. And this can work the same with married couples. I've seen it with married couples too. You know, they're all jacked up, they're going to get married, and all of a sudden, you know, like two months before the, the wedding, a guy comes in, he's like, boy, Father, I'm just, I'm struggling here. I'm like, why? Well, I don't know if I'm supposed to marry this girl. I'm like, what on earth? Where, who told you that? Well, I'm thinking, you know, like, what if it doesn't work out? Oh, that sounds like God. <laughs> <laughs> what if she cheats on me? That sounds like God. <laughs> what if we can't financially make it? What if we fall out of love? What if we, it's all this fear. It's these lies and these deceit and this distraction and this discouragement. You will never be who you think you're supposed to be. He does it in my priesthood. I'm sure the people that are married here can, can, can vouch for it too. I go to give a talk. And I sit and I've worked all, I put all this time in the talk. And as I'm going to give the talk, all I get are thoughts of this is going to suck. This talk's going to be terrible. They're not even going to listen. Most of them are probably going to be texting because they're bored because you're crappy. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> like, where are these? I remember one time when I was getting ready, I did a whole, I did a whole kind of like week-long series for the, the high school students on the demonic. Just all the different ins and outs of the demonic. And I was typing, I was typing out the talk. I remember very clearly that I was a Christ the King of Man when I was associate pastor there. And I was typing it late at night, and I'm going, and all of a sudden I stop. And these thoughts just started coming in like crazy, like, this is stupid. They're never going to believe this. They're going to think you're a kook. You're weird. <laughs> Stop being weird. <laughs> Nobody likes weird people. There's enough weird people in the church. <laughs> like, all these voices are just, they're bombarding me. And I stopped for a second. I was aware of all these voices. And then I said, Jesus, why are these voices coming? And all of a sudden, something became very clear to me. This talks about the devil. Who would not want me to get it? The good spirit or the bad spirit? The bad spirit. I understood it, and I told him to go to hell. <laughs> and I started, and I kept doing my talk, and I said, you know what, you son of a gun? I'm going to put even more time into it, more study into it, so I can reveal all your lies, all your deceit. Because you need to stop attacking God's children. This is the stuff that Ignatius is talking about. But until we are aware and we understand who's speaking, we can't receive or reject. He needs to value and say, Father, what does it mean to receive? What does it mean to reject? It means to receive and to reject. <laughs> and when those voices are coming into your head, don't do this. This is stupid. You're an idiot. Or maybe you've just fallen with a sin and the devil's saying, this is you. This is who you'll always be. You're nothing but a sinner. You're not loved. 
How could you be loved? Look at how pathetic you are. Which is really amazing because this is what pisses me off about the devil. Here's that tangent I was talking about. <laughs> I hate this because he sits and he, he encourages sin. You know? So you're thinking, you got something and all of a sudden the devil's like, yeah, you need that. And I'm like, yeah, I don't need that. I don't need to do that. Yeah, you do. It'd be good for you. And that's exactly how he sounds. <laughs> and I'm like, no. And he, you notice what's going on here. What is not going on? I'm not even aware of what's going on. I really think I'm talking to myself. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's, I, I do need that. I mean, that would be my third Big Mac. <laughs> Just in this city. But, <laughs> but I do, I, you're right, I could use that. I worked out today. <laughs> Probably need some more calories. <laughs> and then it's just constant, you know, like, oh, yeah, do it. Yeah, just do it. Yeah, no, it's going to be No, things are going to be great. And then you eat that third Big Mac, and you get done with it, and you're just like, oh. And then the devil's like, you suck! <laughs> I told you, you're worth nothing. You're a loser. So it's just encouraging. Oh, yeah, yeah. And all the, ah! like, it just comes down upon you. And he's the accuser. Scripture tells us that. He's the liar and the accuser. So first he lies about all the good things that will come from it. Then he accuses once you've done it. Where God the whole time is trying to encourage you. I swear some people, and I include myself in some people, that we all we listen to is the enemy. We just can't stop hearing this broken record inside of us. You will never change. Well, God the whole time is saying, just trust me. Just be with me. Let me provide. Stop trying so hard and let me take over. I'm your father. I know what's good for you. Lean into me. Don't listen to him. And everyone's like, well, why can't God just kill the devil and be done with it? Because of free will. He wants you to freely love him. You know, imagine like a relationship with a husband and a wife, and every time, you know, like the wife got tempted by some other guy that was walking by, the, the guy shot him in the face. <laughs> you know, I would, I would freak the woman out, and it takes the love factor out of it. <laughs> Got to freely choose it. I totally just came up with that example. <laughs> All right. Rule number three. It's called consolation. Three is consolation. Four is desolation. These are really important. Consolation. First of all, it is caused in the soul. What does that mean? Anybody got a, any guesses? What's that? It's from God. Can you cause it? No. You are incapable of causing consolation. Now, there is a difference between spiritual consolation and non-spiritual consolation. What is non-spiritual consolation? What's that? No. 
I mean, it could be, but what, what would be non-spiritual consolation? Not from God. <laughs> like when you tell yourself. Huh? When you tell you, like, within yourself, that it's, like, okay. No. Big Max. Huh? Big Max. Big Max! Thank you! Outside of your relationship with God? What's that? Outside of your relationship with God? Like, the natural world? Things that make you feel good. Yeah! <laughs> this is rocket science, right? Big Macs, pizza, uh, uh, sleeping in, uh, vacations, pleasure. pleasure. Yeah, I mean, all that is not spiritual. Spiritual is directly communicated from God Himself. And it has nothing to do with, your, with the stuff around you. Now, can you be in spiritual consolation while also in non spiritual consolation? Yeah! You can be on vacation, like myself, snowboarding down a mountain after having prayed a holy hour and having mass and just like loving God. And like, oh, you feel like you're floating on your snowboard. And then you wreck. (laughs) 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 And then I hit a tree with Jesus. (laughs) Okay? I love this line. It's from the, uh, we're in Lent, but it's from the first Sunday of Advent. It's right after communion. It's the prayer after communion. It says, May these mysteries, O Lord, in which we have participated, profit us, we pray. For even now, as we walk amid passing things, you teach us by them to love the things of heaven and to hold fast to what, to, to what endures. What is that prayer talking about? It's talking about non-spiritual consolation. The things that are around us, that surround us, that we can look at those and we can move from non-spiritual to spiritual. What does consolation mean by its definition? Con sole. With the sun. <laughs> You're moving towards the light. So can you be feeling like garbage and be in consolation? Yes. You can be in the midst of a terrible disease, terrible suffering, and you can be so focused and radiating Jesus Christ that people are just blown away. Think of Therese. She was in the depths, maybe the worst suffering ever from tuberculosis, and what did she do the whole time? Laugh and smile. And not just because she was putting on a show, but because she was truly in consolation. She was moving towards God at all times, okay? The one thing, too, just really quick, with with non-spiritual consolation, you can't set it up as spiritual consolation. Some people, when they're like, you know, my favorite line, one of my favorite lines from your Christianity, C.S. Lewis, he says, it's a really sad reality when we come to understand that most of our spiritual life boils down to good digestion. And what he means by that is, most of our spiritual life, when we're like, oh, God is awesome, and I'm so prayerful, is because we feel great. We eat well, we exercise, we're like, oh man, I'm totally in spiritual consolation. But could you be feeling great, take care of your body, and be in total desolation? Yeah, moving away from God. You know, I think of like, and, and, and again, I, you know, I, I know this is a very touchy topic, but like the homosexual community. You know, it's, 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 it's all about good feelings, and yet they're moving away from God. I can't say that for all of them. You guys know that. But you know, you, you understand the example I'm using. It can be all about pleasure. It can be moving. I was just in Vail, Colorado. Gosh, there's, there's so many stuck up people there. It's insane. 
It's amazing. I don't like Montana. I don't like, uh, yeah, I mean, Montana's so much better than Colorado. Colorado's got way better skiing, but the, the people are so terrible. It's like France. <laughs> So, really quick, what time is it? Holy crap! Can I finish? Okay, thanks. I was going to anyway. <laughs> Rule number four is spiritual desolation, okay? I just got it. I told you. Okay? Spiritual desolation. Ignatius calls the darkness of the soul, movement toward the world. Very interesting. Lack of confidence, as if one is separated from one's God. When you cannot believe that you are being recreated or healed or loved or that God is moving with you, you are in desolation. Listen to this quote he wrote to one of his sisters that he was, he was uh, directing. Desolation. We cannot pray with devotion nor contemplate nor even speak or hear of the things of God with any interior taste or relish. Not only this, but if the enemy sees that we are weak and much humbled by these harmful thoughts, he goes on to suggest that we are entirely forgotten by God. And leads us to think that we are totally separated from him. And that all that we have done and all that we desire to do is entirely worthless. That's dark. Now, just with, just with consolation, there is also non-spiritual desolation and spiritual desolation. What is non-spiritual desolation? Feel like crap. Depressed. Depressed, yes. Huh? I'm satisfied. Big Mac. Big Mac. Too many of them. <laughs> you know, I mean, like if you if you drink a 12-pack of beer and wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, God hates me. <laughs> that is not true. You have what we call a non-spiritual hangover. <laughs> and you're going to be okay. God still loves you. But this is for people that with spiritual, with spiritual desolation, is that they really feel the absence of God. And Ignatius says, when you have that feeling, you have to move like heck against it. You have to start making acts of faith. You have to start saying to God, I know you love me. I trust you. You've got to read scriptural passages that talk about God's love specifically for you. You have got to move even harder against it. And here's the catch. When you're in spiritual desolation, what's the last thing you want to do? Pray. You know, I think it was Teresa, uh, Jesus, uh, she said that for, I think it was eight years, eight years, uh, she, she didn't experience one thing in prayer. She just sat in her chair, and she said, I wait for the bell. As soon as the bell would ring, she would get up and leave. And she said it was the most important thing she did. And she also said this. One of the biggest mistakes she made in her spiritual life is that when she fell into sin, she stopped praying. She said it was one of the biggest mistakes she made. That even when we're in the midst of sin, think about it. Think about the tax collector in the temple. Did the tax collector stop praying? Was he in the midst of sin? Yeah. What did he do? He just said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's not going to give up on God. God's not going to give up on you. And you can sit back and say, why spiritual desolation? Why does he allow it? Because he wants us to grow in our faith. And usually, if you are in spiritual desolation, it is God's hand stretched out to you to say, let's go deeper. I want to take you even further out of the adventure. 
I noticed in my own life, past like a couple months or so, I was in a bit of spiritual desolation. And all of a sudden, I had this awesome moment in prayer. And I knew it was from God because I, I, I think it might have been from me, but I'm pretty sure it was from God. <laughs> <laughs> because it was so random. All I remember saying is there was so much coming at me and so many problems and so much garbage. And I'm just like, Jesus, I'm like, why can't things be better? You're God. Make things better. And that was my prayer. That's all I said. <laughs> just make things better. And then all of a sudden I was sitting there and I'm just like, ugh. I had to clear my head. And into my head. <laughs> Bilbo Baggins. <clears throat> From the movie when he says, I think I'm quite ready for another adventure. <laughs> That's all it was. And everything made sense to me. The Lord was saying to me, he said, all these things. Think about that story of the Lord of the Rings, right? Was it awesome? I was like, yeah. <laughs> Did you want to see him another one? Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't wait. He said, why? That whole show was filled with terrible atrocities. And I was like, huh. I was like, because it was a great adventure. He's like, that's what I want with you. Every time somebody walks into your office, I want you to say, I am quite ready for another adventure. And I'm telling you guys, since that has happened, some of the weirdest crap has happened to me. <laughs> Unbelievable stuff. And I just, every time, I guess I'm just ready for another adventure. Here we go. Because I don't know where the hell this is going. <laughs> this could derail, this could go to left field. This is... But it's just been great. And so it's in this desolation, the Lord's saying, I want to pull you out of that into a new realm. I want to get you into a new space. I want you to take another step forward. I want you to grow. And so many times we get stuck in desolation, we just wallow. We don't turn to him. We don't keep our eyes focused on him. We don't reject the lies. We give in to the lies. And we know they're not true. God is our Father. Think of, think of the gospel today. I'll finish with this. The gospel today. Right? Knock, the door will be open. Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. What parent among you, when their child asks for a fish, would give them a snake? And if you, who are sinful, know how to give good things to those that you love, how much more does my Father know how to give to you, who loves you? Every time you're in desolation, is not that God has abandoned you. It is that God is calling you deeper. And every time you're in consolation, it is because God wants to prepare you for another adventure. What does Jesus say the night of the Last Supper when Peter's talking? He says, Peter, I have prayed for you. So when this is all over, because Satan is going to sift you like wheat. I know you think everything's just great and grand right now. <coughs> you're, at the last, you know, you're at the institution of the Eucharist. He's like, I'm free. Like when Satan sits you like we have prayed for you, that you will strengthen the brothers. That's Jesus saying, I'm giving you consolation right now because desolation is coming. And don't forget the consolation. You know, I was uh, Bishop Rickon from Wyoming. He's not in Wyoming anymore. I, think he's, I don't know where he's from. Anyway, he, uh, he came to our seminary in St. Louis and he gave a day of recollection. And he said at the end of it, he said, if anybody wants to talk to me, I have a little 15-minute slots you can sign up. And I'm like, hey, a bishop. <laughs> I'm like, I've got to talk to a bishop. This is my first year at seminary. 
And so I went and I talked to him. It had been kind of like, I had like a couple months where it was just really dry and I was kind of in desolation. And I said to him, I said, Fish, have you ever had those times like where it's really dark and dry and like you just feel like you're in desolation? Have you ever? <laughs> <laughs> like I think he's a bishop. He must be in consolation all the time. But he said, he's like, oh yeah. And I'm like, I've been here for like two months. I feel like I'm losing my mind. He's like, yeah, I've been here for five years. And I'm just like, and yet this man is so full of the love of God. And so he just radiates Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's rejecting. He's rejecting the lies. He knows who he is. I know I said stop one more. Mother Teresa, right? Mother Teresa was in desolation, quote unquote, for most of her life. Her famous saying was, she said, I want to love Jesus like nobody's ever loved him before. And she did. 40 years of darkness. You can sit back and you'd be like, why would I want that? Why would I want to enter into that? And it's so you can expand your heart. Because the more you desire something, the greater the desire becomes. And sometimes, you need some absence to make the desire grow. Think about it, you know? Like when family member, somebody you love goes away for a long time, does the desire to see them grow, or does it shrink? It grows. And the longer they're the way, the more you desire them. So that when you see them, it's almost like heaven. That's the same in the spiritual life. It happens in our regular lives. Why would it not happen in the spiritual life? But you can be with Jesus in everything. You just got to bring him into it. You can snowboard with Jesus. You can fish with Jesus. You can study with Jesus. You can talk with Jesus. You can drive with Jesus. You can do all this stuff. But the most important thing, always, you guys, is first and foremost to be aware. One more thing. Remember the movie Inception? Yeah, it's great. In that movie, what was... How did they know they were in a dream? No, no, not that. Before that. No. No. Right, what? They didn't remember how they got there. All of a sudden, they became aware, and they're like, how did I get here? And that's when they knew it was a dream. How do you know when somebody's speaking to you, you become aware of it? Boom, I'm aware. Okay, now what is it? Who is it? Man, you don't have to be weird about it. <laughs> you be the crazy guy, yeah. <laughs> Internal dialogue. Internal dialogue. Who's speaking it? Once you're aware of it, understand it, reject or receive it. Live in the light when it's there. Beg for the light when it's gone. But always trust. In your identity. And always rely on your identity in your relationship. Okay. I don't even know. That was long. <laughs>